Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are here on the campus of Wisconsin Lutheran College to continue Co-warriors. our co-warriors to continue our series um, on the life and thought of Martin Luther. Uh, we haven't gotten very uh, far. I thought we were going to speed up here a little bit, but I think we've actually even slowed it down a little bit. Last time we talked 1530s, about... 1530s, we'll just breeze through Yeah, we're like, there was a decade in there, and then he yeah. died. He died eventually, yeah. Um, <clears throat> we talked about uh, the Diet of Worms, uh, and I don't know, one or two episodes, maybe one episode, and then his escape from Worms, and then uh, his, just kind of generally, this was his time at the Vorburg Castle, and and we wanted to get to the time where Luther leaves the, the Warburg and goes to Wittenberg um, because the reform there has taken a, a turn for a little bit of the worst. But we took a little bit of a detour, not necessarily historically. It's, I think it was important that we did that and talked about the Zwickau prophets um, and kind of this enthusiasm, uh, Schwarmerei kind of movement. Immediate revelation, uh, yeah. kind of interior reflection stressed over which, external signs which is going to have some political ramifications going forward um how do you how do you how do you how does that match up that kind of christianity with the state that kind of stuff and it'll play a part in the peasants revolt in a little bit too and a person who has has ties but and we'll, we'll talk about this how close to ties maybe we look at him uh maybe unfairly um uh, karlstadt and uh and he is going to play a part later when we finally get back to Luther coming back out of the Vorburg to the Wittenberg. And before we get into like the brief biography of, um, of Karl Stott, I just kind of like to say that as I've been studying Luther a little bit deeper, uh, this, these past two years, now that I'm forced to, and you have, um, I've taken a deeper dive or a deeper dive than I have and, and have talked about a little bit more. Um, Sometimes we take these characters and we really do them, we don't really do them, uh, give them the right kind of justice, the right kind of reading. And part of that is because it's very easy to go, here's the winners and here's the losers, here's the good guys and here's the bad guys. You can think of, um, you can think of people like Melanchthon, you can think of people like Philip of Hesse, you can think about Zwingli, and I think Karl Stott falls into that category too it's very easy to make him a villain but it's a little bit more complicated than that once you get into the details you kind of you find sympathy for each of these characters you see their flaws for sure but when you see the whole context you see wow this is a tough position that they were put in and you can see their impulses uh may have been more pure than we thought, right? And I think Karlstadt is 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 one of those characters. But the first question we ask is um, is it should be a K or a C? Yeah, I think the K is the more traditional spelling, and it yeah. seems to be more widespread. But I was gonna and for, it's mention just that. Town. I mean, there's there's a lot of ways that he can be referred to. Um, That's his, his town. He actually has a name, right? right. His his um, so in German scholarship, sometimes you'll even see him referred to as Bodenstein. So Andreas Rudolf Bodenstein von Karlstadt. Um, but I would say in English uh, literature, he's Karlstadt, either with a K or a C. And it used to seem that you saw the C more, but I think lately in stuff I've seen the K more. So. And, and is this because Luther refers to him as Karlstadt? Or do we even know what Luther, what does Luther call him? Well, I mean, there's a number of um, people at this time who are von something and they just become sure. known for the where they're from. Um, but I do think if I'm, I, I that's a very good question, but I want to say Luther refers to him as Karlstadt when yeah. he comes up and 
yeah. in discourse, yeah. And I wonder if in the context and their relationship kind of, you know, like um, you can imagine your mother calling you by your full name in some circumstances or... Well, and if you think about it too, you know, you're in, you're in Wittenberg or whatever town you end up, but your, your family historically is from a place. Well, it's not like there's going to be 87,000 people from mm -hmm. that place in Wittenberg. But a lot of our last names, to be fair, are right, where sure. we're supposed to be from. Sure. I mean, John Stun was probably the son of John at some point, right. but then we were renowned for our piety, and so they put a cross in our name. Right. And so the Berg was probably Mountain, yeah. Or yep, Hill or Mountains. Mountain. Um, yeah. I my mom's maiden name was Pitts, so we're from the, actually the Pitts. So <laughs> we're opposite peoples, Mike. You're like this could be a Lord of the Rings thing. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense about our personalities and our uh. relationship. <laughs> 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 All right, Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt. Um, he is a guy who is um, a professor at Wittenberg before Luther, right? And they mm -hmm. meet in, they meet already in 1512, and so their colleagues. Um, I don't know if it's fair or not to say that Karl Stott maybe helps Luther along, maybe is is superior is not the right word, but, you know, an upperclassman to a, a, a lower classman. Karl Stott had gotten his doctorate before Luther, um, maybe was a, an early friend, uh, certainly an early friend of Luther. And I wonder if that does play into their relationship. But uh, Karl Stott is at the university before Luther um, and is one of his early supporters as well. And so they have a relationship that goes back very, very, very early into this, 1512. Um, and it's, it's going to grow sour a little bit. Um, I think maybe at times Luther is maybe a little bit harsh on him, but again, Luther doesn't, Luther sees, often sees things as theological, right? And so that, that's, that guy is not agreeing with me theological, and I'm sure he had hurt feelings and all that kind of stuff, and, and, but he doesn't seem to care so much about the feelings of other people if they disagree with that, yeah. with him theologically. And I think that's a fair Agri criticism. Agricola. Carl Stott, Zwingli, he makes Zwingli cry, you know, those kinds of things. And in his defense, there's a lot at stake here, right? And so we see that being played out through his relationship. So what do we know? I mean, we, what the, the, the big exception of that, and that's something that we've talked about before, and they'll come up again, I think is really Melanchthon. Yeah. He bends over backwards for Melanchthon. Sure. But, um, uh, and I, we did the episode with Scott Keith. It was a good one on Melanchthon and Flatius. And I, I think there's good reasons he does that. But but I think we see that come up a lot with him. Is, is pretty pretty fair to see. He can even, too, he and Bootser maintain a pretty good relationship, but he can even be pretty nasty to Bootser if he yeah. thinks he's, uh, you know, cuddling, cuddling up a little too much to the and that kind of Yeah, that kind of goes to the point that I started out with, you know, to understand Luther, you understand his pressures, you understand his cause, you understand uh, how important these things are to him, and yet we do not put Luther as this this quiet, humble man who never, you know, flew off the handle, who treated everybody well, and, you know, this kind of martyr almost. He certainly could be, he, he, was, he, he could be pretty harsh when he needed to be, and sometimes maybe even calculated as well. So, uh, Karl Stott and Luther's early years together, what, what do we know about that, Wade, and, and is there anything we can glean from that as we go forward in the story of Karl Stott? Sure, and maybe just to give a little more background on him, just biographical. So he's born 1486, so unless my math is bad, that would make him three years younger than Luther, but as you noted, um, he's going to be kind of older faculty support there. Karl Stott, unlike Luther, was not a friar. Um, or a monk, Luther technically was a friar, but uh, I think monk is a catch-all phrase in English mm -hmm. that we use. 
Um, but he was a, uh, what at that time they might call it a, a secular priest, just meaning a, what we would, you know, in, our, in America we would say a priest is a priest, um, but a, a priest who was not also a monk or a friar. Um, so he was in the priesthood. Um, he had got his Ph.D., or, well, his doctorate of theology, not his Ph.D., I guess, um, in Wittenberg in, four, I hope I'm not messing, in 1510, I want to say. Yeah, it was, it was, um, and uh, also, like Luther, interestingly, uh, studied in Erfurt, 1499 to 1503, and then also in Keln or Cologne, which you'll remember later, uh, well, maybe listeners know or don't know, later on will be very hostile to the Lutheran Reformation from 1503 to 1505 um and i believe he had multiple doctorates i've not been able to find out where he had the multiple doctorates from but i do know i want to say in some of the the things that i've read that he when he renounces when he becomes brother andy i want to say it usually says that he renounced doctorates not a doctorate (laughs) but I, i could be wrong on that um but he uh he will be important as you noted for faculty support for luther as luther gets there it appears also Karlstadt had had a trip to Rome like Luther. Um, Mike, you got your timeline there. Luther's is, Karlstadt's I think is 1516. Or, uh, I don't want to get It's early, it must be earlier than that. Um, I'm trying to remember when Luther's was. Uh, and I might have the date wrong on Karlstadt. Let me try to check that. Um, yeah, so 1511 is when he is in Rome, 1510 to 1511. Okay, and I don't have the date when he went to Rome. I was wrong on that. But apparently after going to Rome, he did write um, some theses about the corruption there too, and it looks like that was in 1516. Okay, so, that so would be after a, Luther, yeah. So it would have been a, about a year before the 95 theses that Karlstadt would have written theses about corruption in Rome. And, and maybe we, should, correct me if I'm wrong, we should maybe think of in the early years and maybe even up to 1516, Karlstadt and Luther are sort of on the same level yep. reputation-wise. and because Luther's still not published yeah. really at this point. And when, when Luther debates with John Eck, it's really Karlstadt against Eck and Luther. Yeah, or Luther and Karlstadt are on one side and Echo's on the other. Um, and Luther sort of takes over a little bit because he's maybe a, a sharper and keener mind in that situation. Anyway, go ahead. And so um, Karlstadt, if I'm not mistaken, theologically, you know, um, people at this time had, just because it's not, um, because it's pre-Reformation doesn't mean everybody was entirely on the same page theologically. I mean, still in the Roman church today, there's theological schools of thought. There's a, a, a wide range of opinion. Um, obviously, it's within bounds, or it's supposed to be. In America, it's not really. Um, but uh, he was a Thomist, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he, at first, is not going to be quite sure what to make of Luther. And Luther's big contribution to Karlstadt early on is going to be he pushes Karlstadt to read Augustine. And so uh, Karlstadt kind of immerses himself in Augustine. And this is one of the fascinating things to me is all the Reformers and the Roman Church claim Augustine. Mm-hmm. Um what you like to say, how, Mike? Oh, you mean Augustine? I thought you were talking about somebody <laughs> yeah, else. Yeah, sorry. So, and maybe our listeners are used to that, but uh, my uh, my first confirmation name, because I've had two confirmations. Oh, man, um, you are special. Yeah, my first confirmation name, my Catholic confirmation, which uh, did not keep those vows very well. <laughs> um, my, uh, I didn't want my, you take a saint name, and I didn't want mine to be the same as everybody else's. And everybody always pick like Peter and Mary, because they're like, 
the number ones, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, man, <clears throat> I'm going to find a good one. And then uh, you, my work ethic has never really changed in life. You can see how far I got in, like, the Encyclopedia of the Saints. <laughs> I made it to AU. <laughs> and I got to Augustine, and I thought, hey, I kind of kind of like that one. And so I picked that. So uh, And when I got confirmed, they said Augustine. That's how we said it. So I don't know if that's the – I think Augustine's the English way to say it, but – but that is in our circles how yeah, people say one, it. And in Missouri Senate, I've noticed that too. One's continental and one's English, I believe. How do you say the city in Florida? St. Augustine. Is it Augustine? Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah. I just didn't say it when I was I was down there presenting this week. And I, so I don't know I if that's a strike for or against Augustine. It's probably for, you know, because <laughs> it, it – uh, you know what else I was thinking about is um, – so I, uh, someone from softball had said that I should let Maggie's – College search largely be determined by college football last weekend. Mm-hmm. I'm getting distracted here, but go somewhere. And uh, so Maggie's been looking at a number of schools, and she actually just put in her two-week notice. We convinced her to quit her job for a little while to get this stuff done. Um, she really has looked at Michigan a fair amount. She likes Michigan, and it looks like she could maybe financially make it work if she got in. But uh, So Michigan, I've got Michigan State on the list, but I really think I have Nick sold on Michigan State because I told him he could take one of our couches. Uh, to burn, to, to burn, burn yeah. yeah, and uh, but so, uh, but like Michigan, Notre Dame, um, and Northwestern, and uh, Madison, and then Minnesota Twin Cities, um, and this guy had said, well, "Why don't you just let this weekend figure it out for sports?" Because Wisconsin played Michigan, and Michigan State played Northwestern, and then Notre Dame had the big game. And uh, I was thinking about when I was watching the Notre Dame game, and I was cheering for Notre Dame because I think that'd be a, a good choice for you know because it's it's Catholic, but at least it's not you know crazy catholic or you know completely off the i mean there's some good stuff in Notre Dame, <coughs> um, except when they turn out lutheran theologians who want to do you know ethics catholic style but um but Notre Dame, they played a good game they just couldn't pull it off but i was thinking why it must be really weird in europe when they hear people americans talk about football and say notre dame mm-hmm. huh because mm-hmm. the cathedral is notre, notre dame yeah, you're right do you think they judge us for that, or you think they're just like that's how they? S- I wonder in England what they say. Do you think they say Notre Dame in England? I would say so. Yeah, they're not gonna say Notre Dame about. Sometimes our lady. the English they'll kind of run with. Yeah, the thing. maybe. So, if you have been to England or you are from England, drop us an email. Let us know. In England, do they uh, say Notre Dame or Notre Dame? But I have to admit, it's like if be it was Notre like Dame, because yeah, even if it was in America, like, if Georgia is playing Notre Dame, I'd be like. They're going to crush Notre Dame. <laughs> but if it's Georgia's playing Notre Dame, yeah. I'm kind of like... Uh, I mean, if you're going to refer to the building, the variety of buildings, it's not like uh, <coughs> Paris is Notre Dame's the only one. You're going to say Notre Dame. So the question is, like, if you are in a lat, if you are a, it went to Latin school in England right, and were Roman Catholic and somehow had to come across the phrase Notre Dame, did you say Notre Dame or... Notre Dame. Right. And so, in the, in, I, mean, I guess the Irish would be good to know, too, because if they're the there fighting Irish, like, maybe that's a Irish okay. pronunciation. Or did they originally call Notre Dame Notre Dame, and then it just got Americanized? Like, yeah, or they're like, we're just going to be different? Yeah. The Irish are going to be This is know. a good question. This is a very good question. Um, but there's a... Okay, i got to get back on top. But we got, we got to go back to... I was about to, to get lost in prep football in the got, Detroit area. we got to go... we got to go to... we got to go back to Carlstadt. Yeah, so... Um, Anyways, 
uh, what got us on the pronunciation? Oh, Augustine. Mm-hmm. So Luther gets him reading Augustine. And it is, that really could be a good episode sometime if we got someone who did a lot of Augustine on too. Um, because everyone claims Augustine. Um, and the thing is, Karlstadt is going to pick up on themes in Augustine that are just different than the themes Luther picks up on. Uh, Augustine wrote so much, and a, he was involved in, um, you know, debating or writing against so many false teachings um, that it's kind of like with Luther, you know, you can really jump on a lot of different stuff in Luther based on what he was countering at the time. Um, and so you can say, well, two kinds of righteousness is the main lens, or law and gospel, or... Um, I mean, you can be a Calvinist who loves Luther because you think, oh, he, his big thing was election. And um, I don't see how, I mean, I don't think the bondage of the will is Calvinism, but mm-hmm. um, they will claim that. And uh, so Karlstadt's going to kind of be won over. But keep in mind when he's won over, this is very early and it's before there's really a sense for what it is to be um, an evangelical, um, as we might call it. Maybe that's still anachronistic, but less anachronistic than Lutheran. And so this is really what kind of wins Karlstadt over to what's happening at Wittenberg, maybe. And this faculty support men like Karlstadt will be extremely important. Um, and it shows kind of the respect that Luther still had for Karlstadt when he's in the Wartburg. That um, it's kind of he leaves Melanchthon and Karlstadt to run the show. And from the first reports he has, he's actually pretty positive about stuff going on. It's, it's after that when stuff will go overboard. But maybe there, if uh, if I can talk for like two more minutes related to Karlstadt, then I'll, we'll switch voices again for you all listening, um, is uh, I think a big thing that Karlstadt will get out of Augustine that was not Luther's primary emphasis, although it could have gone this way in Luther if he had maybe been a little bit more influenced by mysticism. Uh, early on, he is somewhat influenced by mysticism, Karlstadt more so. Um, and that is the flesh-spirit flesh, dynamic in Augustine. And if you read Augustine, you know, you read his Enchiridion, you read some of his other writings, um, I think it's fair to say flesh-spirit is a more prominent dynamic than law-gospel. Now, there's times when Augustine is using flesh-spirit, and it's kind of like law-gospel, but the idea, um, as it gets brought into some of the, the schools of thought in the Reformation of that flesh-spirit um, lends itself to being sacramentarian. Um, sacramentarian sounds like it should mean like you're big on the sacraments. It was always one of those, that's, to me, that seems like a misnomer. But it actually means um, you don't think the sacraments are sacraments. Uh, they become simply um, things we do because God has commanded or things we do as signs of our faith rather than as signs which actually deliver um, what God says they they are or deliver. Um, and so this flesh-spirit dynamic will be important. It'll be the same dynamic we'll see with Zwingli. I'm sure we'll have a winging it session on the Marburg Colloquy, um, and this flesh-spirit will be important there. This flesh-spirit dynamic, when that becomes the prominent lens for reformers, oftentimes lends itself to also um, iconoclasm, right? Because the spiritual is spiritual and the flesh is fleshly, and so there's less of an appreciation or even a tolerance of ecclesiastical art. Um, and I will say often, too, um, music will become, for instance, for Calvin, uh, metrical psalmody will be emphasized where you're not going to have a lot of instrumental accompaniment or no instrumental accompaniment, and you're just going to sing 
biblical songs, um, not biblical like um, biblical doctrine, but they're actually from the Bible, like the Psalms um, in meter. And uh, so Karlstadt is going to end up in Switzerland and be somewhat comfortable there, but it's going to be a road to get there. Um, and maybe, Mike, anything you have on uh, where this divergence from Luther is going to start to show itself or how? Well, sure. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come when he's at the Varper a little bit. You know, like you said, you already <coughs> highlighted the iconoclasm there, and maybe things are going too far. And, uh, and maybe, I mean, feel free to unpack that, Mike, because you, you've, you've done more than me with the importance of the external or, as you say, physicality. But yeah. how, when this iconoclasm is manifesting itself, what does it look like or what shape yeah. is it taking? You know, I, I, they're going to they're gonna say, okay, the Old Testament said don't make graven images. And so that's going to be the law motivation for them to do that. But what's deeper is... Um, I think a divide between the spiritual and the physical, I don't, you know, I, I hate to say Gnosticism, you know, um, but it's similar to Gnosticism. And they are going to take flesh there to often mean physical. Yeah, whereas physical. You know, Lutherans are going to take flesh to mean sinful nature. Sinful nature, yeah. And so I think one of the misunderstandings that is throughout the church and still today, uh, throughout the history of humanity, really, is the idea that the body's bad and the spirit's good. And so I'm a little bit more pure when I um, worship in spirit and in truth, right? I mean, you can find a gazillion passages right. that are going to Jesus find. Says, to, says to the woman at the well, there, you know, there's a time where they will worship me in spirit and yeah. truth. And pe people in that those camps will usually take that to mean that that's a completely non-physical sort of worship. Right. And so I think in, in, in Second Corinthians, St. Paul talks about being away from the body and all this kind of stuff. You can, you can, vary, you can take these passages and and see how they could be manipulated, not even manipulated that much. You could say that that seems to be the first sense. But if you understand that both the body and the spirit are created by God, therefore they are good. And especially because of the incarnation, Jesus takes on flesh. Therefore, it is not inherently bad. Therefore, you cannot just make this split so easily. So the problem becomes sin. And if I start saying that the human flesh, which is usually for St. John, shorthand for sinful flesh, not flesh and bad. If you say the flesh is what keeps us down and the spirit is good, you can very easily start to get into the idea that I'm not really guilty. It's the body that's guilty. I'm not really sinful or in a Christian sense, my spirit can overcome the flesh and I can be on my way to being not guilty. I can be on my way to righteousness. And I think the, the better way to think about it is body and flesh so intertwined, you can't really even think about and talk about them being separate. We have to, but it's very difficult that they're both inherently good because they're creating the image of God, but they're both corrupted by sin. And so I, I really, when I, when you start seeing like Munzer and, and, uh, some of these more radical ones who want to, who, who believe that there can be a utopia here on earth. It is get rid of the bodily stuff and we can do it. Like we're not so corrupt because our spirit can overcome the body. Our spiritual little commune can overcome the physical institutional world. And we still have that today, right? If I just get away from the institute, I get away from the physical, I get away from... 
um, you know, the corruption of this world and the corruption of the church or the corruption of the government, then I can overcome. And it, and it implies that you yourself are not as corrupt as everybody else. And so that's one issue. Now it gets played out with, I think, a downplay of the sacraments, so pietism. I think it gets played out with, let's get away from all this fancy Roman Catholic smells and bells. I think it gets played out with a, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship spiritually, which somehow gets equated to simple worship and enthusiasm. I look inside of myself for God and my feelings. I mean, all of those, I think, gets, get played out. And, and Carl Stott is maybe a little bit of a test case because he does flirt with all of those things. So it starts with the iconoclasm in Wittenberg, I think, is one of the reasons why there is going to be a divide between Luther and Carl Stott. You are also going to have the pressure from Frederick. Carl Stott is, is, is going too fast. And so the, the, the secular ruler is going to be like, hold on, pump the brakes a little bit. And Luther, ironically, becomes the more level-headed of the two. Um, Carl Stott is eventually going to not lose his post at Wittenberg, but he's going to lose his prestige there. He's going to uh, eventually find himself in a town, uh, uh, Orlemund. Is that Orlemunde. right? Orlemunde. Um, where he's going to be the parish pastor, but he's going to hold on to his teaching at Wittenberg for a while. And that's when he is going to start to enact his, um, his reforms, more, we would call more radical reforms than what Luther and uh, what's going to become known as the Wittenbergers would, would, have, would have agreed to. And this is where then he starts to flirt with Thomas Munster. And really, Munster is going to be the one who sends a letter so approaches Karlstadt to say, here's what we're doing over here. And this is going to be this connection that Karlstadt will say, I'm not on board. Yeah. But Luther will never separate those two men in his mind after that. Yeah. Um, even if maybe Luther will concede, okay, Karlstadt says they're not connected. In his mind, when he's reacting mm-hmm. to things, he always will see Karlstadt caught up with the notion of rebellion or instability. And I believe when Karlstadt has to flee some of the peasant revolt stuff, I yep. think, Luther houses him, but doesn't he make him promise or even like write something down that he's not a part right. of this yep. kind of stuff? It, but it just seems Luther never will quite yeah. buy it, that Luther can never put it out of his head that Karlstadt is not um, in the image of Mincer. And when Mincer first sends a letter to Karlstadt, Karlstadt, from the story that uh, Hendricks tells, rips up the letter right away, yeah. but then puts it back together and actually talks to Munster about that. And, and, and they do go their separate ways, but I think Carl Stott still flirts with some of those ideas. For instance, he is not going, he's going he's gonna to turn away from the sacrament of Holy Communion a little bit and say, it's not a means of grace. And his argument is, if God would if Jesus Christ instituted as this a means of grace, then why did he die on the cross? Right. If you're just going to give that away. And Where we, the difference will come, I think, will be um, there's some similarities even to the Zwickau stuff, but Karlstadt definitely wants to reform society. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, for instance, in the Reformation theologians, a, a really good anthology of essays put together by Carter Lindbergh, um, they put uh, Karlstadt in the Radical Reformation section um, and, you know, Karlstadt never really gets to the point where it's let's tear everything up. 
I would say for Karlstadt, it's more let's purify it. Does that make sense, Mike? Does that? He's a true. He's a true believer. Where Luther is a little bit more skeptical of human nature. Right, yeah. and and but he he doesn't seem to ever want to go so far as Mincer is. Mm-hmm. Let's take up arms, smash some statues. Okay, um, but take up arms. Karlstadt is not going to want to. But but Luther just he can't see how Karlstadt's approach doesn't eventually lead to that. Mm-hmm. Sorry for interrupting. No, you. that's fine. And then, um, so just a, I'd like to read a long paragraph that's okay because I thought this is a fascinating story and I'd heard about it, but when I reread it, I, I really liked it. This is where, uh, so Karlstadt doesn't want to go with Munzer and and this is, this is bad. And so there's an attempt at a little bit of a reconciliation with Luther and, and they met at Jena and they're at the Black Bear Inn. There's a cool name for a pub. Yeah. And um, let me just read. Luther invited him to the Black Bear Inn and the former colleagues who had known each other over other 12 years, each other 12 years, exchanged barbs as if they were an estranged couple. In the presence of supporters and onlookers, Karl Stock contended that Luther's sermon, so Luther on his way to meet um, Karl Stott had preached on the way. He never goes anywhere without preaching and mentions the radical reformers, not Karl Stott by name, but he certainly had Karl Stott and Munster in mind. Karl Stott contended that Luther's sermon associated with him Munster and protested that he explicitly refused Munster's invitation to join his campaign. Luther insisted that his sermon did not mention Karl Stott by name and admitted that Karl Stott had never advocated <laughs> violence, right? Just these guys are, are back, going back at, at each other. The conversation might have ended there, but Karlstadt announced he would prove that Luther did not preach the gospel correctly and offered to debate him. Luther challenged Karlstadt instead to write against him publicly, and to show he meant what he said, Luther gave Karlstadt a gold coin. Karlstadt held it up to the bystanders as proof of Luther's challenge and put the coin in his purse. So this is at the bar. They've probably been drinking for a while. It's pretty this cool is, scene, yeah. though, yeah. Then he offered his hand to Luther, and they drank to the agreement. Afterward, however, Luther reported to Spalatin that Karlstadt did it still adhere to Munster's murderous notions, and given the opportunity, might yet make trouble. That report contradicted what Luther had said to Karlstadt at Jena, and it resulted in Karlstadt's banishment from Saxony. So you have this back room, you know, and and there's going to be a duel, but it's uh, people uh, not of the sword, but of the mind, and so they're going to go back and forth. And Karlstadt probably thinks, okay, I've proven to Luther that I'm a real mensch, I'm your equal, let's debate this. Um, I'm not going down the road of Munster. You've been unfair to me. And here's one of those situations where Luther perhaps could have and maybe even should have taken Karlstadt by his word, but knows this is not. Karlstadt is still uh, still suspicious. And because Luther has power in Saxony, gets Karlstadt banned from Saxony, which yeah. is a big deal. And that's that's one of those places where you go, was Luther too harsh? Maybe, maybe not, right? right. I don't know. But I think it's a it's a thing that's still common today. I mean, it's part and parcel of who we are. We're always more bothered by those who are or were close to us differing from us Agricula's than those idea. who weren't. Yeah. And so, for instance, you look at, um, in our own Wisconsin Senate history, um, we have the break with the Missouri Senate. And I think a break that probably was, um, it had to happen at, at some point um, at that time. And I think um, plenty of people in Missouri would say they kind of needed to get their house in order. That being said, I'm, I'm very happy that there have been talks between the two synods now as well, and uh, there's a lot of really good theologians in the Missouri Synod and, uh, who are doing stuff well. And at the end of the day, even though we're not in fellowship, probably 
in the world, there's no church closer to us that's not in fellowship with us than the Missouri Synod. But when things happen in the Missouri Synod, in the Wisconsin Synod, we probably get much more bothered than we do if things happen in the Methodist Church or in the Episcopalian Church, um, particularly because, right, they're close to us, and they used to be part of the Synodical Conference, and and um, and I think that's kind of a normal thing. We have much a much harder time forgiving friends who were close to us that went a different path than us at some point than someone we never really were close with. So Luther will be bothered by Zwingli, but not in the same way he'll be bothered by Karlstadt because um, he and Karlstadt had labored together, right? They had worked together for so long. And so I think that's something that all of us can really fall um, victim to. Uh, Maybe if I can just summarize kind of the roundup of Karlstadt's life and then uh, let you jump in with anything you got. Well, and I I think I'm kind of tapped out on this, but I would like you to... Karlstadt and Swingley, right? And that's what I want to yeah. get to because what, this will be important. What's the connection there, yeah. Because it, I mentioned that Lindbergh puts him, him with the radical theologians, and I think that's probably fair. But um, if at this point, the break with Luther, you would have thought, okay, Karlstadt's going to end up an Anabaptist. And I don't think Karlstadt ever really considered himself an Anabaptist. Um, he did, interestingly, kind of teach a sort of believer's baptism but he also did not rebaptize those who were baptized as infants. And so this is a big difference from the mm-hmm. Anabaptists. Um, he and Zwingli agreed kind of on um, a representative nature of the Lord's Supper, that it represents Christ's body and blood. Um, but Zwingli did not kind of adopt Karlstadt's view that when Jesus said, this is my body, that Jesus pointed at himself, <laughs> you know, uh, which I always thought was a, a stretch. Um but he will end up eventually with the with the Swiss. He will end up um, in Zurich for a while, uh, and he will um, get along with uh, Zwingli. He will have a good re- relationship for most of this time um, with Heinrich Bullen- uh, Bullinger, who t- will take over for Zwingli after Zwingli dies on the battlefield. Um, and so I think it's interesting to see that Karlstadt kind of finds a place and a home among the those of the Swiss Reformation. Um, and I think uh, they're not a bad fit. The iconoclasm is somewhat similar. The view of the sacraments is somewhat similar. And Karlstadt actually will end up uh, being a professor again. Um, in 1534, he ends up in Basel, um, and he will be professor of Hebrew and dean of the university, actually. Um, and then he'll teach there for about seven or eight years, and he'll die of the plague um, on Christmas Eve which seems like just a bad day to die of the plague, you know, um, of 1541. So he will, while he, some of his stuff, and, and this is what's interesting to me, and Saxony will be considered radical, he will actually become part of the institutional or mainstream uh, of the Swiss institutional life or the mainstream of the, the Swiss Reformation. Um, and I think in doing so, he'll show himself not to have been a revolutionary, um, but to have wanted, like Zwingli wanted, um, this purification of the church. We're going to throw off the trappings of papism. Um, but I think what sets Karlstadt apart is that impulse to want to be Brother Andy, right? He, he's going to wear peasant's clothes. He's going to want to support himself, not through the church, but through working. Um, and I think he has to let this part die down a bit when he is among the Swiss, 
but he really does think the gospel has social um, should have social implications. And so Alejandro Zorzin, who writes the the bit on Karlstadt in that Lindbergh book, um, has a, a helpful line. He says, "In biblical terms, his posture centers more on the individual than on the whole community." Um, talking about Luther and others, um, tolerating the scandalum pusillorum that is causing offense for the least of these in order to avoid the scandalum pharisaeum, the scandal of the of the Pharisees. Um, and Karlstadt, I think, always had at the same time this notion that the, cons- the scandalum pu- uh, um for the concern for the least of these um, ought to be reflected more in the social life, the economic life of his day. Um, where's the happy spot in there, right? There's, Carl Pustat's probably not completely off that um, Christians could better live um, as children of God and of the gospel. Uh, I mean, there are inconsistencies in every society or culture. I don't care where we find ourselves in this world. There are going to be things that are um, that seem inconsistent with it, and so I always feel a little bad for him that you know it wasn't like he was out to start a civil war, um, but at the same time I think unlike Luther he didn't grasp um, that there's not ever going to be a Christian society in this world. Uh, there wasn't a notion of two realms, two spheres, two kingdoms. And that uh, when I go to church, I stand equal to everybody in that church. But when we leave, um, there might be differences in social standing and and that it's going to be hard to get around that. You might, um, there's been plenty of revolutions to flip things around, but there kind of always ends up being social structure that's hierarchical. Even when you have um, attempted communistic revolutions, you know, the party or the political class, someone's always going to have um, standing that is above that of others. But to be fair to him, um, I don't think it was an, an, uh, a selfish concern. I don't think it was a completely out there concern, although Luther will, will put it that way. But I do think it was a, a failure to grasp um, the nature of life in this world as a Christian. That being said, did the Lutheran Church eventually coddle up too much to the state, probably, uh, and accept the default status or, or arrangements of the, probably right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the the state church was probably not good for the state or the church, um, as it later developed. So um, he will f- end up at home um, in cities of the Swiss Reformation, Zurich and Basel, um, and then die 1541. So he dies about five years before Martin Luther, um, but they'll never really be. Uh, reconciled. No, not at all. So I think that was pretty good. And uh, you had anything else to add, or should we maybe just say preview the next one? Yeah, I think maybe uh, next time we'll do the Invocavit sermon so Luther comes back to Fort Bragg. So there'll be some crossover because this is where really the hard feelings will develop uh, between Karlstadt and Luther. And, uh, um, you know, we'll have to talk about, you know, Everybody in town was trying to let the bird fly, <laughs> but Luther's gonna gonna try to come back and say, "Nah, this is 
this is how you, yeah. you left the bird. So flag. we'll meet Karlstad again, and then uh, some of these similar themes will come up when we get to the Peasants' Revolt. So next time, please come back and join us, and we'll try to try to make it to uh, uh, Luther leaving the Vortburg to come back and preaches a series of sermons in Wittenberg at a, at a pretty uh, tumultuous time uh, in Wittenberg where you have... Where are we going to go with this reform? What is this reform? So we hope that you'll join us uh, next time we have our Winging It session, hopefully next week. Until then, let the bird fly.